This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast focused on the intersection of energy and finance. This is Hill Vaden, your host here today with Chris DeLucia, the maybe the only oil and gas analyst in, in Portland, Oregon. Chris, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, Hill. How are you? I'm doing well. And uh, so, so not only are you perhaps the only oil and gas analyst in, in Portland, Oregon, but, but you're an expert in the portfolio strategies of oil and gas companies, whether that's low carbon initiatives or traditional oil and gas. And this is a follow-up. Many listeners will uh, recognize your voice from prior podcasts that I think we did one just a year ago, uh, maybe less than a year ago, and, and much has changed since then. Definitely no, and and it's good to be back. So so thanks very much for for having me on the on the pod. And yeah, it's certainly an area where there's a ton happening, whether it's on the upstream side, whether it's on the low carbon side. But uh, quite a bit of change that's that's uh, impacting the the oil and gas landscape and and shaping how these companies are are thinking about their portfolios and their strategies. Well, and just so so some of the headlines, I was just you know looking through notes uh, in preparation for this, and you know since we've last talked, Total has changed its name. To, to reflect um, more of its pan-energy strategy to, to be Total Energies. Shell has made a big acquisition in a renewable residential retailer. And then as recently as, what, last week or two weeks ago, BHP is selling down its oil and gas uh, portfolio entirely, I guess. So, so lots of activity in the kind of M&A sector, uh, lots in the branding sector. And really, I guess, you know, there's a lot of different things to unpack, but but you published a paper just a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, looking at the returns uh, profile from uh, traditional oil and gas investments that where a lot of these companies kind of devoted all of their portfolio attention to now some of the renewable um, activities. Um, and, and this was an update to some work that I think you've been doing now for, I guess, a year or two. Can you maybe walk us through what uh, some of the takeaways of the paper are? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, one of the things that we've been trying to really understand and and help our clients uh, get a, a better handle on is, you know, as these companies, as, as these IOCs and, and uh, in some cases NOCs start to broaden their portfolios and broaden their uh, investments beyond the traditional oil and gas space, you know, what does that do for the overall performance and, you know, maybe returns and, and cash, fi- uh, cash flow profile for these companies? So, you know, we're starting to see low carbon investments in particular starting to get increasingly material for, for some of these companies and for the majors in particular. So if we look at the majors, what we refer to as the, the seven global integrated oil companies, we're seeing low carbon investments account for about seven to eight percent of total corporate capex on an organic basis in 2021. So, you know, those those investments that started out pretty small are now starting to uh, get increasingly material, especially for some of the Europe based companies. So what we've been trying to do over the past few years is, is really try to understand as those investments get increasingly material. What does that mean for the operational and financial performance of, of some of these companies? So the you, you say we're at like seven, eight, uh, nine percent now. How much of that is an increase in spend on low carbon versus a decrease in spend on traditional oil and gas? 
Yeah, so it's it's actually a little bit of both. You know, we've we've seen some of these companies pulling back on their overall corporate investments, and and we saw overall corporate capex decline for this peer group by about thirty percent in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, the the overall peer group generally maintained their their low carbon spending on the year, and we're actually seeing that on an absolute basis rising again in twenty twenty one. So uh, just to put those figures in perspective there, we saw about $6 billion in total low carbon spending on an organic basis from from the the seven majors in 2020. We see that rising to about $7.5 billion in 2021 and rising to a little over $15 billion by 2025. So, you know, steady increase in low carbon spending, both on an absolute basis and as a share of overall capex. And part of that, as you said, is, is a reflection of just declining investment in the overall upstream space at the same time. And some of the paper was looking at particularly the, uh, I suppose, the, the stability of some of the the, the non-oil and gas and, and the, the oil and gas that there was a lot of volatility and I guess the potential risk uh, re- reflected in the potential returns as well. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah, definitely. So when we when we first published this analysis a couple of years ago, I think it was back in 2019, what we were trying to do pre-COVID was really just looking at oil and gas versus some of these low carbon areas where some of these companies were investing. So whether that was in things like renewables or, you know, electric vehicles and and mobility or or batteries and storage, uh, you know, how do those different sectors compare to oil and gas? And what can the value proposition be of some of those investments for oil and gas companies? So the initial conclusion when we first did this analysis back in 2019 was that, you know, generally speaking, oil and gas has tended to offer um, some of the highest returns within the the energy landscape, but with the highest volatility. And if you looked back over the past couple of decades at the trend, in particular, if you looked at something like oil and gas versus renewables, what you see is a, a pretty stark difference in terms of how those those two sectors play out. So on the one hand, you have oil and gas generating returns up to and, and even beyond kind of that that mid to high teens range, but with pretty significant volatility down even into the negative terrain as well. If you contrast that with something like renewables, you have you know, generally returns in sort of that mid to high single digit range, but with pretty remarkable stability. So you look across economic cycles, across commodity price cycles, uh, and over a, you know, a long time horizon, you see that stability uh, for the overall sector playing out in a pretty remarkable way. Again, especially in contrast with, uh, with the oil and gas sector, where you, know, you do have that higher upside, but where you have that uh, that greater volatility, and we saw those numbers playing out in the results of the analysis, where you know again you have that the highest average returns from oil and gas, but mm-hmm. with some of the highest uh, standard deviation of those returns in comparison with some of those other sectors, where you know maybe the t- returns might not be quite as high, but you have that stability that can kind of uh, give you that that lower overall risk profile in terms of the investment. That was particularly pronounced in 2020, right, where, where I think the oil and gas side was down, what was it, 7% while, while renewable generation was positive 5%? Uh, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, if we uh, when we updated the numbers for, for 2020, when we looked at the, the median operating return on invested capital for the oil and gas sector, uh, 2020, not surprisingly, perhaps, uh, was actually at the lowest level thus far this century. So the median return for the group of companies that we looked at, it was about 30 of the largest IOCs. It was about negative 7%. So that was the lowest uh, this this century. That was the third time those returns had gone negative. And again, not surprisingly, just, just given the overall landscape with the commodity price plunge and with some of the impairments that we saw some of these companies taking amid the, the overall COVID landscape. 
But yeah, in comparison, when we looked at renewables, that sector was down just a bit in 2020, uh, down to about 5% or so. Again, really just highlighting the the relative stability of that sector when you contrast it with uh, something like oil and gas. So I think one of the, the key takeaways for us from that analysis is that, you know, certainly when it comes to oil and gas companies devoting more and more investment to some of these sectors, there is the the trade-off of you know maybe losing some of that upside that you might get mm-hmm. from investing in oil and gas. But we do think that there is va- uh, value, not only in terms of adding diversification to the overall portfolio, but also in terms of introducing that that lower risk element that can sort of you know smooth that returns profile and, and give a bit more stability to the overall financial and operational performance you know amid various parts of the cycle and amid different uh, economic conditions. Do you think so? So if we're looking, we're sitting here then of uh, August and, and, you know, basically, you know, three quarters of the way through the year and uh, oil, oil and gas sector has, has been, you know, one of the outperformers, at least in terms of equities. And what one would expect that, you know, oil and gas returns are going to be certainly better than last year and perhaps outperforming. Is it, could we say there that we might expect them to outperform the renewables space? I think you, the, the paper mentions that renewables has outperformed oil and gas for five of the past six years or something. Is this year going to perhaps swap? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question. You know, we, we've certainly seen a return to much more favorable conditions for the oil and gas sector. And that does get to, you know, some of that potential lost upside that you have, you know, not only as you reduce investment in the upstream space, but also as you start to reallocate some of that capital away from the sector towards some of these these other uh, areas, whether it's renewables or or other low carbon op- opportunities. So, you know, the, the paper was entirely backward looking. We mm-hmm. didn't you know give any forecasts as far as what we expect uh, the next few years to look like. But I think that's certainly a fair question. You know, it's certainly the performance thus far amid some of you know the higher commodity prices that we're seeing on the oil and gas side, as well as, you know, some of the greater capital efficiency that that's been instituted uh, across the sector where we've seen, you know, these these significant uh, capex cuts. We've seen significant cost reductions in, in some of these projects that are being developed. So I think no question, we're, we're likely to see a, a much better picture in 2021 uh, in terms of how oil and gas compares to some of these other these other sectors um, so that does get to the question of you know how much are you losing in terms of upside as you as you shift your portfolio towards some of these new opportunities and do i i'm assuming that the um that i suppose the corporate commitment um you know that, that if there is outperformance this year that, that we expect to continue commitment to the, the diversification strategy for those that have diversified and are we seeing almost a bifurcation where, where you've got some who, who are really betting hard on that diversification as others kind of double down? You know, I think at the, the end of our last conversation last year, we, we talked about Robert Murray, who, who had just uh, died, the, the, the coal executive who doubled down on coal for, for, for a while because uh, I think his famous quote was something of that's all I know, something to that effect. Sure. Um, and, and we're still seeing a lot of these kind of that's all I know operators out there within oil and gas. Do you see that continuing or or, or more of the that's all I know camp going to get into the, the low carbon strategy camp? No, I, I think it's a it's a really interesting question. Um, I think what we've seen thus far in terms of the messaging from some of these companies that are are starting to diversify and are starting to invest 
in increasing scale into some of these these new business lines, you know, the message from them has been, you know, look, we understand there's going to be significant volatility growing forward. There's going to be shifts in terms of the, the commodity picture, and, and you know, there's some questions about whether there's uh, underinvestment in the oil and gas sector that's going to lead to that, you know, that potential super cycle. But you know, they've still continued to stick to their guns and and kind of taking the longer term view, saying, look, we understand there will be those peaks and valleys, but we're going to stick with the strategy, continue to push more and more into the low carbon space and continue with those investments. But as you said, at the same time, you know, we are seeing that bifurcation in the industry where there are, you know, certainly the ESG question and the, the low carbon investment story is is touching on all sectors and, and impacting, you know, almost everyone, certainly uh, almost all publicly traded companies in the sector, uh, but there's different strategies about how to go about that and, and how to how to incorporate ESG and low carbon into the portfolio. And in, in many cases, in most cases, in fact, we are seeing those companies saying, look, we want to stick with what we know. Uh, we want to stick with our core competencies, continue to invest in in our, our core businesses, and that's how we, we can best compete. And within that context, we'll, we'll look to lower emissions and, and become more carbon competitive. But, you know, we're going to stick with that strategy. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the sector right now is that that bif bifurcation is going to lead to growing discrepancy in terms of performance within the sector. So if you think about over the past, you know, however uh, many years, you know, certainly there have been differences in terms of, of strategies when it comes to oil and gas, you know, companies pursuing different asset types, different jurisdictions, you know, even different levels of integration across the oil and gas value chain. But it's all been, it's all been uh, more or less within the context of oil and gas. But mm -hmm. as you start to see some of these companies venturing out, devoting more and more capital to some of these new business lines, we think that's going to lead to greater differentiation in terms of how these companies perform and, and create more opportunity for these companies to, to stand apart from some of their peers uh, as those divergences play out. How have the oil and gas companies entering some of these, uh, I guess, renewable landscapes, uh, how has that affected the, the presence of that from a competitive standpoint, I suppose, before their arrival? Yeah, well, it's definitely led to some changes as far as how those industry dynamics are looking. So, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more capital from these companies flowing into some of these low carbon opportunities, specifically within the renewable space. And that's definitely had an impact in terms of, you know, what, what the competitive picture looks like. So we're seeing greater competition in terms of uh, bid rounds for things like offshore wind leases. Mm -hmm. We're seeing growing valuations in the M&A space as, uh, you know, as some of these companies look to build out their, their portfolios through uh, M&A. And we're starting to see shifts in terms of the, the overall competitive landscape within some of these sectors as well as some of these oil and gas companies you know bring some of their their differences uh in terms of approach to the sector so you know just to take a couple examples there uh you think about you know one of the characteristics that makes the renewable sector compelling to some of these uh investors from a return standpoint you know it's it's really that tendency to to have returns underpinned by long-term power purchase agreements so we're seeing mm -hmm. things like you know 15 to 30 year PPAs that kind of, you know, give you that stability of uh, cash flow and returns over that, that longer, uh, longer time period. You know, when oil and gas companies come into the space, you know, they might bring in some unique characteristics, perhaps a, a different risk profile or, or risk tolerance that gives them the ability to maybe compete a bit differently than some of the incumbents. And we've already seen that playing out a bit. Um, for example, Total on one of its uh, uh, offshore wind projects in the UK 
has actually indicated that it's going to um, look at, at five-year PPAs uh, for that project in, instead of you know some of the longer-term uh, PPAs that we've we've typically seen. You might be willing to see companies come in and actually uh, you know bid for projects without any offtake agreements, uh, sort of like what we're seeing in the LNG space, where they might be willing to take on more of that that merchant risk. Um, so again, some of the dynamics that are more unique to some of these oil and gas players, you know, may start to shift the landscape, shift the returns profile a little bit in terms of um, some of these sectors where they're getting involved. And that could shape how things look going forward in terms of not only competitive dynamics, but also the, the uh, returns and cash flow profiles of some of these investments. It would seem to add volatility to, to, to what we, you described a minute ago as being, you know, at least backward looking, more of a stable kind of predictable earning stream. I, I think that's exactly right, and and that's one of the the questions that um, you know these companies will have to address is you know as they're starting to you know introduce some of these new elements into that market, does that erode some of the value that they thought they might be getting, or that at least historically renewables and some of these sectors have offered? You know, if those returns are are more stable, they're underpinned by those longer term contracts. As those market dynamics start to shift. You know, does that does that shift the value proposition and and make them a bit less compelling uh, in terms of what those uh, sectors can offer for these companies? And are the other participants um, who have been in the sector, perhaps a pure plays within wind or uh, whichever te technology you want to talk about, um, are, are they receiving the, uh, the the oil and gas companies well? I mean, that that five year uh, agreement from Total is that being copied or are others still looking to lock in 15 year agreements? You know, I'll I'll defer to our uh, colleagues on the renewables team. I, th I think they'd be best uh, placed okay. to address some of those questions. But I, I know that, you know, certainly this growing competition, you know, growing capital flowing into the sector and some of the shifting dynamics, you know, it's, it's changing how these companies are, are thinking about the overall landscape. And I think there's no question, you know, they're going to have to adjust if they haven't already. You know, these investments are only going to grow in materiality, you know, as as some of the majors and, and some of these other companies start to invest more and more in things like renewables. So, you know, I think there's there's um, really no no way that some of these investments don't don't shift how the how those incumbents think about their 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 uh, their businesses. So if we're thinking about the, the oil, uh, oil and gas companies and some of the core competencies, um, offshore wind makes a lot of sense uh, because these companies are, are used to running big, long lead time, uh, complex engineering projects. Are, are there some others that are, are maybe flying a little uh, under the radar that, that uh, we're seeing more of an appetite for? Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, one of the questions that these companies are, are facing is really, you know, how, how do you intend to compete in some of these new business lines, right? You know, you've been in oil and gas for uh, X number of years. That's really your core competency. Um, you know, whether you're investing organically or, or through M&A to get into some of these new business lines, it's still going to be a new business. You know, how do you intend to compete with these incumbents and what are the, the underlying competencies that you can bring to the table? So it's interesting. If you look at what these companies are saying about what returns can be expected from the sector, you know, they, they tend to point to the, the same numbers that we're seeing, sort of those those mid to high single digits, but mm -hmm. they are also expecting to capture additional upside based on some of the 
kind of uh, in-house competencies that these companies can bring. So, you know, thing that you, you mentioned offshore wind, you know, uh, something like um, like that is is an area where they can really bring their their project management expertise to to try to gain some synergies. You know, through these, you know, understanding how to develop these long lead time um, opportunities, these you know these capex intensive developments. You know, there's certainly an element of uh, expertise there that oil and gas companies can can bring. Um, you know, companies are also targeting things like benefits through portfolio integration. So basically being involved, unlike some of the pure plays, perhaps being involved at various points along the energy value chain, you know, perhaps synergies can be gained from that uh, as a way to drive additional upside in, in returns. We're seeing companies, uh, oil and gas companies touting things like, you know, brand recognition where, you know, perhaps they can get access to uh, additional customers just, just given their, their overall recognition worldwide, you know, things like having a global presence where they might have opportunity to gain exposure uh, or access to, to new opportunities, you know, based on existing relationships with with different companies uh, or with with different different governments. And, you know, a few other areas where, where companies are looking to kind of, you know, build on those on those returns incrementally, you know, things like portfolio management where, you know, maybe they get involved in early stage opportunities, you know, bring those along the development timeline and then farm them down at a later stage. You know, we've seen a, a few companies getting involved in, in, in that type of thing, Equinor specifically, um, you know, kind of getting involved early in the, the stages with offshore wind and then farming down at a later time to, to try to capture some, some value there. So, you know, all those things are, are areas where companies are, are really looking to uh, leverage their existing capabilities and, and, and again, try to not only compete with some of the incumbents in these industries, but also, you know, maybe outperform um, what those incumbents might be able to do in terms of returns. And it seems that the the integrated majors are the ones who are really driving a lot of this uh, activity relative to uh, the, the national oil companies. Do, do we expect that to continue or are national oil companies, um, I suppose the name national oil company is somewhat limiting uh, w w within that type of conversation, but, but is that a limit that can be overcome or is that a limit right now that's kind of imposed by national mandates that says you're an oil and gas company and you will be an oil and gas company, or could I, a national oil company, get involved in the offshore wind game given the current rules, or does it depend on kind of country by country? Yeah, I, I think it's really kind of a case by case basis. You know, I think if we look at the overall uh, landscape of upstream oil and gas companies, investment in low carbon will continue to be dominated by the by the majors, but we are starting to see expansion beyond that peer group in terms of some other companies looking to you know diversify these portfolios and that includes NOCs in, in some cases you know it's going to be again really case by case as you said some of these companies you know just may not have the the government mandate to expand beyond the core oil and gas business uh, in a lot of cases governments really want these companies to just focus on generating value from domestic basins and, and kind of you know commercializing the domestic resource base especially ahead of the energy transition. So in some cases, there may be uh, increased pressure on these companies to actually devote more CapEx to making sure those um, those resources don't end up uh, you know, being stranded. In other cases, you know, there may be more willingness for, you know, for government entities to get involved in the, in the low carbon landscape. But in some, ca some cases, there might be, you know, other agencies that are mandated to do that beyond the NOC, um, which may restrict the NOC's investment. 
But we are seeing some cases where uh, NOCs are starting to really look to diversify those portfolios, really look to sort of position for the energy transition and kind of gain exposure to some of these different technologies. Again, whether it's renewables, whether it's uh, things like, um, you know, transmission, you know, we saw Echo Patrol just making the bid for uh, that transmission company in Colombia. Um, so, you know, we are starting to see more investments like that, where there is that effort in certain cases to really diversify and, and try to position for the longer term. And is that so? So as we're thinking, you know, I think you mentioned that that you know through 2020, where what eight percent of capital was going to kind of low carbon across the sector, outside of the NOCs. Where do you expect us to be in say five or ten years? Are we going to be at 12 percent, or are we going to be at 50 percent, or 100 percent? Yeah, it's a, you know it's it's a fair question. I think if we look overall across the entire landscape. You know, I think this is going to be a pretty gradual trend, mostly because most of these most of these companies are going to continue to focus on the core business. That's that's really what their shareholders want them to do. That's really how they think they can best uh, compete and, and best um, you know position themselves, even you know even as the energy transition unfolds. So as we look across the entire upstream landscape, if we look at at 2020 in particular, across all companies, IOCs and NOCs, uh, we're seeing low carbon accounting for about two to three percent of total corporate capex. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, that number might start to edge higher, but, you know, probably not going to be a, you know, a significant number by the end of the decade. But if we look at specific peer groups, and again, focusing on the, the global integrated oil companies, you know, if we look at our estimates, you know, as I mentioned, we saw 2020, the global integrateds had low carbon accounting for about 6% of total capex. We see that rising to a little under 8% in 2021. You know, by 2025, uh, we see that number around 12 to 13%. But if you look at the Europe-based members of that peer group, you know, that number is closer to 20%. So, you know, pretty significant differences as far as uh, how that will play out. But for certain sectors, and again, for the majors in particular, uh, we do see that number becoming increasingly material, and it's it's only really heading in, in one direction at this point. Um, you know that that number just continues to get higher. And are there some companies that that are perhaps growing on more of a linear basis, and, and others where we expect a, check, a step change and more of a doubling down of commitment? No, it's it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think you know you look at someone like BP, for example. You know th that trend there has, has really been more linear, you know, up until 2020, you know, the numbers were kind of, uh, the numbers were kind of, you know, growing steadily, but with the 2020 announcement in terms of their shift in strategy, we've seen their trend in terms of low carbon spending becoming more exponential, you know, really just because 2020 was such a, an inflection point in terms of uh, how they were thinking about their portfolio, how they were, how they were thinking about uh, low carbon versus oil and gas. So we see for them the numbers, you know, rising more significantly and and, and accelerating uh, starting in, in 2021. For some of these other companies, it is more linear. You know, they've they've already started to allocate an increasing share to to low carbon, and and we do see that continuing to grow. But I think for most of these companies, you know, there is still that effort to maintain that diversified portfolio where they are are still you know gaining exposure to low carbon at a growing rate. But still, you know, continuing continuing to invest in the upstream space, making sure that they're exposed to, you know, the upside that we talked about in terms of what oil and gas can offer relative to these other sectors. So, I think, you know, generally speaking, across the the broader landscape, my expectation would be that it 
you know, the growth would be more linear, but mm -hmm. with certain exceptions here and there as companies shift shift strategy. Is there been discussion that that you know companies are wanting to to, to keep it linear or, or get to a point where they can keep the the low carbon spend linear and 100% correlated with, with total capex and say, all right, if I can get to a point where I'm spending 20% on low carbon, 20% on traditional energy, or sorry, 80% on traditional energy, and then I'm just going to ride that, that that's going to be my portfolio strategy from here on. Are any of those numbers being thrown about, or, or is it is the industry still kind of finding its portfolio balance? You know, I, I think it's more the latter. You know, we are seeing some long-term guidance as far as, you know, where companies want their portfolios to be. But I think, you know, that's still kind of in flux, right? So I think the initial point right now is, you know, let's get increasing exposure to some of these sectors. Let's, you know, get that portfolio integrated. Let's get, you know, some of the the financial and operational benefits of some of these new sectors, you know, in, uh, sort of integrated in the, into the portfolio and go from there. So I think, you know, the focus right now is really on, you know, just growing the share of, of spending for some of these companies to low carbon. And I think the optimal mix in some cases is is still to be determined. You know, we're seeing some cases, uh, some companies talking about, you know, their oil and gas portfolios peaking by the middle or the or the back half of uh, the coming decade. But in some in, in some cases, you know, we're seeing, you know, kind of that continued growth in the upstream through the end of the current decade and, and you know, maybe beyond. So it's, it's kind of case by case. And I think, you know, companies are still trying to maintain that ability to to pivot as the transition, the energy transition continues to unfold and, and making sure that they can be flexible in, in response to that. So it, it, we've spent much of our conversation or all of our conversation talking about those who are allocating capital outside of oil and gas. You know, that there is a there's a buyer, you know, so assets are trading hands and there's a buyer for these assets, the, the, the traditional oil and gas assets. Are we, you know, and if we, I think the example that we used a few minutes ago was looking at, you know, the diversified player versus the this all I know player from a climate perspective or an environmental perspective, you know, I know the super majors, for example, um, have a, a lot of call it checks and balances to, to operate the, the assets um, as safely and as prudently as possible. Um, it, are we kind of moving into is there any risk in the divestment that uh, operators that, that are picking these assets up are perhaps less worried about the, the uh, emissions or, or the environmental, the climate impact of the assets than, than would have been the case if the assets stayed in the hand of the super major? Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges that's um, you know starting to be increasingly clear around some of the divestment strategies of, of some of these companies. And I, I think you know it raises a challenge to some of the divestment pressures that these companies are facing um, from certain parts of the market in terms of you know trying to improve the emissions profile of these companies because as you said you know as they um, you know put out these divestment targets on the oil and gas side and as they look to shrink down the oil and gas portfolio in some cases either on an absolute basis or on a relative basis you know those assets are getting uh, transferred elsewhere uh, and it, it may be the case that they end up with a buyer that that simply just doesn't face the same constraints or, or or the same pressures that some of these larger publicly traded companies are so whether that's uh, nocs that um that, that don't face those those same constraints uh, from shareholders uh or also you know maybe private equity backed companies or, or just other privately held companies that, that mm -hmm. just don't have that same level of, of shareholder pressure you know there is the risk that these assets get get transferred to those companies that that aren't 
you know, instituting the same level of greenhouse gas reductions measures. Now, I think in, in you know, most cases we're seeing companies, you know, whether public or private, you know, we are seeing more and more emphasis on emissions mitigation strategies, but that level of emphasis, you know, varies quite a bit, whether it's a, a, a company based in Europe versus, you know, North America, whether it's public or private, IOC or NOC, you know, all these companies are uh, exposed to different uh, levels of, of, of pressure from from the market, from regulators, um, you know, from from the general public. So, you know, I, I, talking about these divestment strategies, you know, that is something to keep an eye on. You know, as, as these assets go to some of these other players, what does that do for the overall emissions picture? You know, maybe it gets the emissions off the books of you know some of the larger players, but those emissions are are going to get transferred somewhere and ultimately produced and maybe not produced in quite the same efficient way that they might have been had they been held by the prior company. Uh, the, you know, the other thing is these assets that are getting divested, you know, they're probably getting divested because they didn't compete for capital in the same way that other assets in the portfolio do for some of these companies. So, you know, maybe those assets would have gotten left undeveloped had they stayed mm-hmm. on the books of some of these companies. You know, a buyer is certainly going to, you know, be, be much more interested in developing those assets. You know, maybe they're just more compelling within uh, a new player's um, portfolio. So, you know, there is that risk as well that, you know, perhaps assets that, that may just not have been competitive, you know, all of a sudden get developed under a new buyer. So, you know, these are all considerations that I think we need to be thinking about when we're looking at the divestment strategies of some of these companies. And I think it's it's worth, you know, raising this issue because, um, you know, the, these divestment programs are, are ongoing. You know, they're a, a big emphasis for, for several of these companies, and we're going to see more assets uh, changing hands. So it'll be worth monitoring you know what happens to these assets once they once they switch um, once they switch portfolios. The looking backwards, the the buyers of these assets, maybe without exception, are already in the space. Is that fair to say? I mean, we, we haven't seen a lot of new companies say, "Hey, I'm going to get all of a sudden get into oil and gas or oil or gas because so and so is selling their assets." We're seeing someone say, "Hey, I've already gotten a position in X." I can enhance that position by taking this from this seller. No, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, when we look at some of the M&A strategies of you know, the companies out there that are being active, one of the big catalysts behind M&A has really been about you know increasing portfolio efficiencies. So you know whether that's increasing exposure to an existing asset, you know, increasing that that working interest, or whether it's buying properties or developments or acreage that's in the vicinity of existing infrastructure where they can, you know, perhaps more efficiently develop those assets. We're generally seeing buyers looking to leverage those synergies when they're looking at uh, acquisition opportunities. So, um, you know, to your point, when we think about these assets that are being sold, you know, it's it's not generally not being sold to someone that's a new entrant to the space. For the most part, you know, we're seeing these assets going to companies that are, you know, seeing those synergies from from these new uh, additions in the portfolio. You think about something like, um, you know, Santos buying Oil Search, where you know you have uh, the opportunity to gain scale within some of these. Um, these LNG opportunities in Papua New Guinea, you know, that, mm-hmm. that was really the strategic rationale for, for Santos. And, you know, I think in, in most cases, you know, whether it's on in the U.S. onshore or internationally, you know, that's been the, the strategic rationale for, for some of these acquisitions. Well, maybe as a way to, 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 to kind of leave this for next year, we can come back to this. But if you're, you've done this paper now for a couple of years running, uh, and in some ways, I would imagine that you're going into it 
with some expectations that what you wrote last year is going to be updated with extensions, um, but, but not a lot of whole new changes or step changes or things like that. If, if you were thinking about, uh, you know, working on this research again a year from now, what would surprise you? What, what, what is a reasonable expectation that might really surprise you uh, when you come to look at the data a year from now? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, it's an interesting question. You know, one of the things and we don't have the numbers just yet to kind of understand what 2021 looks like, but I think one of the things that I, I might expect to see would be a kind of a reversion in terms of some of the, the recent trends. So, you know, you mentioned earlier on that renewables have outperformed oil and gas on the basis of returns over five of the past six years. You know, I think there's been some expectation that, um, you know, some of those historical trends may persist. Oil and gas has been under pressure. Um, you know, we're seeing so much interest in renewables in terms of, you know, development opportunities and in terms of, you know, companies and countries putting out targets for, for growth. But I think with what we're seeing on the oil and gas side, not only in terms of the improved commodity price picture, but also in terms of some of the measures that these companies have put into place, you know, I think we might actually see a pretty compelling year in 2021 for oil and gas. Now that hasn't really, I don't think that view is necessarily yet held in the market. You know, you mentioned some of the performance that the oil and gas companies have had on a share price basis over, you know, over the course of this year, uh, you know, reversing some of the losses that they underwent in 2020. But I don't think, you know, all of that upside is yet baked in. We didn't see much response in terms of um, shareholders reacting to, uh, you know, pretty positive earnings reports over the first, you know, two quarters of this year. But if those if those trends hold, you know, I think we might ha actually have a pretty competitive and a pretty compelling year for oil and gas. So, you know, that may lead to some um, interesting outcomes in terms of uh, how equity markets shift. You know, oil and gas has been relatively out of favor, but it may cause investors to take another look at, at the sector um, if these trends persist. So, you know, who knows? I'm, I'm not making any predictions about commodity <laughs> prices, um, uh, so please don't hold me to that. But uh, again, if, if things continue to look the way they, they have, uh, I, you know, I think that could lead to a pretty interesting level of analysis that, that might, at least on a short-term basis, flip some of the results um, that we've had going, going forward. So we'll see, uh, you know, I'd love to come back and, and talk when we uh, update the numbers for 2021. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, if if uh, if that would be of interest, uh, I'd love to, to be back on. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Maybe we'll have some 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 waves in your uh, in your in your draft just to, to, to give us a little bit more uh, curiosity. That's right. Yeah. Just when we thought we had it figured out, every, everything changes. <laughs> right. Right. Well, perfect. Well, Chris, thank you. It's always a pleasure uh, speaking with you, and I love this topic. And. and uh, I'm, I'm glad to uh, I'm glad to put a uh, I guess a placeholder in the calendar to do this again uh, next year. That sounds great, Hill. Thanks so much. All right. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.